History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Frowning at Fraudacious Fabrications, J.J. Thomas and F.A. Durham. In our last episode on Antenor Firmin, we told the story of the anthropologist Caroline Fleur-Lauban coming to know Firmin's work by chance after a Haitian student brought him up in her classroom. Chance was likewise involved in Chike, coming across one of the figures we'll be discussing in this episode. He can no longer remember what it was he was searching for on Google Books when he stumbled across a book from 1892 with the title The Lone Star of Liberia and the subtitle being the outcome of reflections on our own people. The book's cover page identifies its author, Frederick Alexander Durham, as a law student and a member of Lincoln's Inn, a barrister association in London. As he began to skim the book's contents, Chike discovered that Durham was from Trinidad. Trying to go beyond the book, however, he soon realized that, beyond the fact that Durham was a Trinidadian studying law in London in 1892, there's very little that we know about him. Both Durham and the book that he wrote seem to have been almost completely forgotten. Most scholars of Caribbean thought showed no awareness of his existence. Chique reached out to an expert on 19th century Trinidadian intellectual life and found that even this scholar had never heard of Durham. By making Durham one of the two figures we will discuss in this episode, then, we are even more than usual mining the unexplored riches of Africana philosophy. And, as Chike realized when he read The Lone Star of Liberia more carefully, Durham is indeed a priceless find. Among proponents of a return of diasporic Africans to their homeland, he was the only writer to focus particularly on racial oppression in the Caribbean as a rationale. While unique in this respect, he was also a man of his time and place. His writing in the early 1890s self-consciously builds upon the contributions of two other Afro-Caribbean thinkers, who had written in the previous decades, especially in the late 1880s, Edward Blyden, whom we've previously discussed, and Durham's fellow Trinidadian, John Jacob Thomas. In our episode on Blyden, we identified Christianity, Islam, and the Negro Race, published in 1887, as his most famous work and the one that marked his transformation into a pioneering cultural nationalist. It clearly made an impression on Durham. In the preface of Lone Star of Liberia, he writes that a black reader who has read Blyden's book should already have more than a fair knowledge of the history of his race and fatherland, and expresses the hope that his own book will be found a not unsuitable appendix or supplement to that work. Though Durham presents both Blyden's book and his own as historical works, they are in fact wide-ranging reflections on Africa and its diaspora, looking not just at the history of black people, but at the present-day state of affairs and the future development of the race. If there is one theme that ties together Blyden's various concerns, from the differential impacts of the Abrahamic faiths on Africans, to the prospects for progress in Liberia as a republic born of diasporic return, it is his emphasis on the potential for achieving black unity and autonomy in Africa. And Durham takes over this theme. So it makes sense that he should see his book and Blyden's as forming a kind of unified text and modestly describe his own contribution as a mere supplement to what Blyden had already achieved. As for Durham's other inspiration, J.J. Thomas, he was arguably the most prominent black intellectual based in the English-speaking Caribbean in the 19th century. Born in 1841, very shortly after the end of slavery in the British Empire, 
he became first a school teacher and then a member of the civil service. It was while holding the latter position that he completed his first book, The Theory and Practice of Creole Grammar. This linguistic study reflected the history of Trinidad's colonization. After three centuries as a somewhat neglected possession of Spain, Trinidad was opened up to French settlers from elsewhere in the Caribbean beginning in the 1770s. This jump-started the island's development while also swelling its enslaved population. Then in 1797, Trinidad was captured by the British and remained a British colony until gaining independence as part of the twin island nation of Trinidad and Tobago in 1962. As a result of this history, during Thomas's lifetime, English was the official language of Trinidad, but French Creole, of the kind that one associates with Haiti and the French islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe, was very commonly spoken. Its influence can still be noticed today though the use of French Creole as a primary language of communication began to die out by the early 20th century and is now exceedingly rare. This makes Thomas's study of the language in his theory and practice of Creole grammar a fascinating time capsule and makes Thomas himself a pioneering black linguist like Samuel Ajaye Crowther, whose studies of Yoruba and Igbo we mentioned in episode 55. Thomas makes some philosophically interesting points about the value of such linguistic investigation. He argues that the social forces of law and religion were both hampered by insufficient understanding of patois, as French Creole was commonly called. Less than competent translations from Creole to English were an impediment to the administration of justice. And with regard to religion, Catholic sermons were often delivered in standard French, only vaguely intelligible to the Creole speaker. In both cases, the root of the problem was a prejudice that Creole is nothing but badly pronounced French. Thomas aims to combat this dismissive oversimplification, writing, Spoken as it is by thousands upon thousands of human beings, to most of whom all other language is unknown, the Creole would have been a singular dialect indeed, if, from its formation up to the present time, it had continued to be a mere jumble of French words, uncouthly pronounced, and at best pervertedly understood a language spoken and yet inert, is an impossibility. Thomas goes on to discuss, in connection with this point, the dynamic formation of new words, a process characterizing Creole as much as any living language. Another service Thomas provided in this book was the collection and translation of proverbs that circulated in Creole. On this point, he arguably anticipated the work of Kwame Jeche, whose studies of the philosophical content of Akan proverbs we discussed in part one of this series on Africana philosophy. Thomas, too, recognizes the special place of proverbs, referring to them as the beautiful sayings which form the ornament of African discourse, and claiming that this fund of wisdom has been the instruction and delight of the Negro race in all ages and stages of its existence. And, as Jeche would later do, he identifies them as a useful resource for studying the mental habits and capabilities of the people who invent them. He connects the role of proverbs as a form of seeking and disseminating knowledge in his own time to their use in the non-Christian setting of traditional African life. We prize them as beautiful, no less than intelligent, deductions from the teachings of nature, that free, infallible, and sublime volume which providence has displayed to all men but more distinctly to those who have no other revelation and guidance. His book, The Theory and Practice of Creole Grammar, brought Thomas significant recognition. On a visit to England in 1873, he was elected a member of the Philological Society of Britain. 
Back in Trinidad, he continued to hold various positions of importance in the civil service and frequently contributed opinions to newspapers. From the late 1870s onward, however, he was beset by illness that disrupted his career and his literary efforts. He left to spend time in Grenada and hoped to return to England for further research and writing in England, but had to cancel his plans on account of rheumatic paralysis. So he was living in St. George's, the capital of Grenada, at the fateful moment when an Englishman by the name of James Anthony Froude published a book that would inspire Thomas's most famous literary effort. Froude was a prominent intellectual who made his name as a historian of 16th century England. During the 1870s and 1880s, he traveled through the British Empire, visiting South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and the islands of the Caribbean. This led to two books, Oceana or England and Her Colonies, published in 1886, and The English in the West Indies or the Bow of Ulysses, published in 1888. Part travelogue, part political theory, these books place great value on the unity of the British Empire. But Froude thinks the empire will be preserved by respecting and empowering those who are British in an ancestral sense. Self-government in places like Australia and Canada seems to him useful for keeping the empire together on a happy and voluntary basis, but it is inappropriate for the Caribbean, where it will inevitably result in the unacceptable consequence of black rule. Envisioning a time when an English governor general will be found presiding over a black council, delivering the speeches made for him by a black prime minister, Froude shudders and states plainly, no English gentleman would consent to occupy so absurd a situation. Thomas was among those angered by such passages. In response, he published a series of articles in a newspaper called the St. George's Chronicle and Grenada Gazette. These became the first draft of his charmingly titled book, Fraudacity, which carried the subtitle West Indian Fables by James Anthony Froude Explained by J.J. Thomas. Thomas completed and published the book in England, which he finally reached in the summer of 1888. By the time Fraudacity was published a year later, illness was again getting the better of him, and he died in London in September of 1889, mere weeks after the book's publication. In Fraudacity, Thomas says the refutation of Froude is a patriotic duty. Central to his defense of Caribbean self-government is the idea that not just black West Indians, but West Indians of all racial backgrounds, with any sense of fairness and self-respect, are agreed on the following principle. That we, the said colonies, being an integral portion of the British Empire, and having in intelligence and every form of civilized progress outgrown the stage of political tutelage, should be accorded some measure of emancipation therefrom. In other words, the time had come for West Indians of all colors, as British subjects, to display their political maturity. Froude's diatribe was therefore not only out of order, but out of date. His views showed no awareness of the passage of time, which Thomas likes to personify with a capital T. Early on, Thomas argues that, from the perspective of black West Indians, racial hatred based on the slavery of the past has become irrelevant. Death, with undiscriminating hand, had gathered in the human harvest of masters and slaves alike, according to the normal laws of nature, while time had been letting down on the stage of our existence drop scene after drop scene of years, to the number of something like fifty, which had been curtaining off the tragic incidents of the past from the peaceful activities of the present. Being thus circumstanced, we thought, what rational elements of mutual hatred should now continue to exist in the bosoms of the races. 
This optimistic perspective on historical memory and race relations underlies many of Thomas's criticisms of Froude. For Froude, the history of the West Indies can be summed up as follows. We have been a ruling power there for 250 years. The whites, whom we planted as our representatives, are drifting into ruin, and they regard England and England's policy as the principal cause of it. The blacks, who, in a fit of virtuous benevolence we emancipated, do not feel that they are particularly obliged to us. They think, if they think at all, that they were ill-treated originally and have received no more than was due to them. Thomas ably reveals the problems with this picture. He notes that those who experienced emancipation, far from being ungrateful, exhibit a remarkable attachment to the queen, precisely out of gratitude for their freedom. As for those born free, it's absurd to think anyone should be grateful simply for never having been enslaved. The ideals of those born after emancipation are more ambitious, to look after their own affairs and pursue their highest aspirations, which is precisely what Froude seeks to deny them. Froude's inability to see this shows that his sympathies lie not with these striving black subjects, but with the white planters. Thomas diagnoses in Froude an impotent grudge against the black population, whose activities nevertheless provide a living refutation of the sinister predictions ventured upon generally against their race with frantic recklessness by affrighted slaveholders, of whose ravings Mr. Froude's book is only a diluted echo, out of season and outrageous to the conscience of modern civilization. Among the many who were inspired by Thomas's response to Froude's racism was Frederick Alexander Durham. Durham himself highlights a similarity between Fraudacity and his own The Lone Star of Liberia. Like Thomas, Durham is responding to a book by an English writer, William Laird Close. While working as a journalist for the London Times, Close spent time in the American South and published a series of letters in the Times describing and analyzing the social and political situation there. These were collected and published in 1891 as a book entitled Black America, a study of the ex-slave and his late master. Like Froude, Close opposed the political empowerment of black people. For him, the mere presence of such people in the United States was an almost insoluble challenge to its democratic system of governance. He expresses the paradox this way, equality between the races is a hopeless dream, yet the whole fabric of American institutions rests upon the assumed equality of its citizens. He mentions proposals to solve the problem by surrendering some or all of the so-called black belt of the southern United States to the black population, but this presupposes what Close calls the unjustifiable premise that the Negro is fit for self-government. And whom does he cite as an authority when rejecting this premise? None other than his countryman, James Anthony Froude, and specifically Froude's arguments in The English in the West Indies that Haiti has been a horrific failure a warning against the granting of self-government to black West Indians. Sounding much like Thomas, Durham explains in the preface to The Lone Star of Liberia that the aspersions and libels cast on the African race by Mr. W. Laird Close in his Black America impose on me the duty of repelling and refuting the same. Durham does just this over the course of the book, including a whirlwind discussion in chapter two of Intellectual Giants of African Background, going all the way back to such stars of the history of philosophy without any gaps as Augustine, Tertullian, and Origen. When he gets to the modern period, he touches on practically every figure we've covered, 
or even mentioned in passing during this second part of our series of episodes on Africana philosophy, from Juan Latino, who you may remember from episode 29, all the way up to J.J. Thomas, of whom he writes, the late Mr. John Jacob Thomas, whom we knew personally, was a grammarian and author. It was his pen that supplied a long-felt want of those who were ignorant of the French Creole patois. Thus, while entering Thomas into the list of intellectual giants, Durham celebrates the theory and practice of Creole grammar as his most significant contribution. But Thomas comes up again at the end of chapter 5, which Durham closes with a poem that appeared in Fraudacity. Thomas treated the poem as a quotation and ascribed it to a West Indian Negro, whom he left anonymous, but at least according to Durham, the poem is by Thomas himself. Durham writes, The above-quoted lines were written by our late esteemed and distinguished countryman, John Jacob Thomas, author of The Creole Grammar and Fraudacity, Fraudacity, in a reply to Mr. James Anthony Froud's The English in the West Indies. Mr. Thomas coined it from the historian of Henry VIII's cognomen, fraudacity being synonymous with mendacity, hence an Africo-American, a West Indo-African or other African, would term the assertions made by W. Laird Close and other calumniators of the mighty and wonderful Ethiopian race fraudacious. Which is all good fun, but even putting aside the mistaken repetition in the title of Thomas's book, Fraudacity, Fraudacity, Durham's etymology of fraudacity might be wrong. The word is often understood to be a portmanteau of Froude's name and audacity, not mendacity. And actually, the term fraudacious was used before Thomas's book appeared, in a critique of Froude by a white Guianese writer named Nicholas Darnell Davis, and reportedly prior to that by Australian critics of Froude. For our purposes, though, the main point is that Durham is consciously building upon Thomas's work. In fact, one might have the impression that Durham's relationship with Thomas is similar to the bond of influence and inspiration between Durham and Blyden, or perhaps even stronger and more extensive given that Durham tells us that he knew Thomas personally. But that impression would be wrong. While Durham nowhere openly criticizes Thomas in The Lone Star of Liberia, the book is nevertheless a radical rejection of Thomas's political vision. By contrast, Durham does openly criticize Blyden, yet this serves only to show how ideologically in tune with Blyden he really is. Durham's criticism of Blyden is found in the final chapter of his book, entitled Repatriation and Liberia. Here, Durham lays out his ideas about how people of African descent in the Americas can overcome their oppression. For all his sharp criticisms of Close, he agrees with Close that the only way to solve the problem of racial strife in the United States is for African Americans to be supported in emigrating to Africa. Of course, given his skepticism as to whether black people are capable of self-government, Close could only picture African Americans flourishing in Africa if they were under British rule. They would be happy subjects there, as he imagines black people in the Caribbean to be happy under British colonial dominion. For Durham, by contrast, the whole point of going to Africa is the attainment of true and complete independence. Thus, he arrives at his radical position. We propose to send all Africans who are living out of Africa and who are willing to go to the independent Republic of Liberia. This is the country all Africans, except the Haitians, should go to. The title of Durham's book evokes Liberia's flag, which resembles the flag of the United States but with only one star. But at a more metaphorical level, 
The title Lone Star of Liberia indicates that Liberia is a beacon that should attract all black people back toward Africa. The only exception is the Haitians, who can already boast of living in an independent black republic. It is in this context that Durham uses honest and well-meaning men like Liberian Professor Blyden will sometimes say things which on second thoughts they would not say. Blyden was of course a champion of emigration to Liberia, but sometimes cast a wider net. In 1891, the same year that Close's book was published, Blyden delivered a lecture in Lagos in present-day Nigeria, in which he encouraged his audience to imagine the result of 100,000 Negroes from America settled in the Yoruba country, with their knowledge of and practice in the use not only of implements of peace, but of the instruments of war. This is what Durham criticizes. He admonishes, what we think a distinguished and talented man like Liberian Blyden should imagine or rather work for is the unity and concentration of the Ethiopian race, at least the English-speaking portion of it. We do not want a man who will scatter, but one who will unite the already scattered race. Let a talented man like Liberian Blyden unite the Ethiopian race in Liberia. What Durham aims for here is, we might say, to out-Blyden Blyden himself. He seeks to push Blyden's emigrationism to its logical conclusion, which turns out to involve single-minded dedication to the growth of Liberia. To say that his vision for Liberia is an expansionist one would be a gross understatement. It is precisely because Haiti is geographically bound, being just a part of an island, that it cannot be the place to which black emigrants flock. By contrast, Durham thinks it is not only possible but absolutely essential that Liberia should be reinforced, consolidated, and extended. Given Durham's adamant opposition to division among Africans, one gets the impression that he would find it quite satisfactory if the borders of Liberia were to expand until they contained within them all of Africa. This vision of independence through emigration to Liberia puts Durham completely at odds with Thomas. Durham, unlike Thomas, sees no value in Black West Indians remaining and being acknowledged as an integral portion of the British Empire. In response to the kind of aspiration toward self-government defended in Fraudacity, Durham responds, Does the African subject of the British Empire desire home rule? There is Liberia. She enjoys independence. At one point, he speaks very directly to Afro-Trinidadians, referring by name to towns and villages in various parts of the island and imploring inhabitants to seek a better life in Liberia instead. Thomas and Durham thus adopt very different agendas for black people in Trinidad and the rest of the Caribbean. Yet Durham avoids making this deep disagreement explicit when he speaks of Thomas, perhaps because with Thomas already dead and gone, there could be no fruitful debate between them. But what happened to Durham? When did he die? Or more pertinently, where did he die? We know he hailed from Trinidad and spent time in England, where he wrote his book, but did he follow his own advice and end up in Liberia? To our knowledge, the only published work with information about Durham's life is Marika Sherwood's biography of Henry Sylvester Williams, another important Afro-Trinidadian. Williams is often cited as a founder of Pan-Africanism, despite following in the footsteps of others with a strong claim to this title, like Paul Cuffey and Martin Delaney. This is because he organized the first ever Pan-African Conference in London in 1900, thereby giving the movement its name. A few years before this, he created an organization called the African Association, and Sherwood's book 
reveals that Durham was involved, along with two brothers of his. Durham, both of these brothers, and Williams were all Trinidadians who studied law in London. But unlike his brothers and other figures we'll be discussing soon, such as Anna Julia Cooper and W.E.B. Du Bois, Durham does not appear on Sherwood's list of attendees at the Pan-African Conference. So where was he? We can't say for sure, but a scholar named Peter Fraser has found a record of Durham in the Gold Coast, or present-day Ghana, in 1915. So Durham was indeed true to his principles. He did go to Africa. Perhaps he even spent time in Liberia before ending up in the Gold Coast. It's nice that we haven't completely lost track of him in his final years, and even nicer that this mostly lost voice of 19th century Africana thought should finally get the attention he deserves. But we need to avoid making much bigger omissions too. We've been focusing on developments in North America, the Caribbean, Europe, and of course Africa itself, but we mustn't leave out the nation which had the largest slave population in the so-called New World, lest our claim to be covering Africana philosophy without any gaps be accused of being, as J.J. Thomas might have put it, fraudulent. So join us on a trip to Brazil, next time here on the History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles